for the last few weeks, I've been sharing with you uh, what I'm just calling the, the tithing challenge, and I want to share that with you again today. Uh, if you're a guest, uh, it's okay if you want to zone out for a few minutes. Uh, this is really uh, focused for those of you, I want to speak directly to those of you who call Kingwood Church home. I want to share a couple thoughts with you this morning that the scripture teaches us uh, about giving. We've talked about why tithing matters. We've talked about the ABCs of tithing, if you were here last week. And today I want to share with you two principles of giving from the Bible. Here they are. We don't give to get. We give because we have received. So we don't teach the prosperity gospel here. We don't believe the prosperity gospel. We don't believe that it's God's will for everybody to be you know, financially rich on earth. That's not, that's not what we teach. It's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does teach us that we should give in proportion to what we have received. So in other words, if your income goes down, you give less. Why? Because you give in proportion to what you have received. That's what the Bible teaches us about giving. So the Bible teaches us that portion is 10%. So 10% of whatever you've received is what the Bible teaches us we give, and that's called tithing. So here's the second thought today. We receive in proportion to our giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is a farming metaphor. The Bible basically says, okay, giving's like farming. That's what this verse means. So if you're a farmer and you go out and you plant a few seeds, don't expect a big crop because you only planted a few seeds. On the other hand, if you're a farmer and you plant a lot of seeds, expect a big crop because you planted a lot of seeds. It's really just a very practical illustration the scripture's pulling on for, from here. So if you give generously, you will receive generously. We don't have any control over what we receive. That's, that's up to God. But, but we know the Bible tells us if we give generously, we receive generously. So uh, I found a study that I'd never heard of. A landmark study, the first of its kind, that was completed in 2013 that compared the financial life of tithers and non-tithers. And it measured nine financial health indicators. And would you believe that the people who tithe, according to these nine financial health indicators, the people that tithe weren't better off in one of the nine or two of the nine or five of the nine. The people who consistently tithe were better off in all nine financial health categories than the people who don't. Well, we didn't need this study to know that because the Bible told us that. But it helps us, those of us who trust in math more than God, it helps us to have some math to see that. So I wanted to show you a couple of the stats that the study found. 80% of tithers have no credit card debt. 74% of tithers have no auto debt. 48% of tithers own their home. 28% of tithers are debt free. Now that, that, that's a powerful scientific study that was done that verifies what God's word has been teaching us all along. If you give generously, you will receive generously.
because you receive in proportion to that which you give. So I'm, I've been asking everyone who calls Kingwood Church home if you would take the tithing challenge as we start 2017 because as a church, we don't have the income that we need to do everything that God wants us to do. Now, all, we're paying all our bills, we're not in trouble, nothing like that. But, but let, me, let me give you a, a picture so you can wrap your mind around what I'm saying. Where we consistently fall short is in our ability to do outreach. Everything else is covered. So our church ought to spend about 10% of our income every year on local outreach. We presently spend between 1% and 2%. We're way behind where we ought to be. And so I'm just giving you that need and appealing to you as a Kingwood Church family member, if this is home, then I'm asking you to take the tithing challenge because I know we're a hardworking church and we want to be compassionate and we want to be generous to the community that God put us in, but we can't afford it. So I'm asking you to help us afford it. We need about a 10% increase in our annual income in order to do the outreach that we're prepared to do, that we're already ready to do. So here's how you can take the tithing challenge today. If you'll look at your info guide that you received this morning, uh, on the back, it gives you uh, a little, there's a tear off. You can sign up for the tithing challenge here and you can drop it off in the basket uh, outside after service, the Welcome Center, or you can uh, access it by text that you see uh, above me. Uh, you can access it by there. You just send that text and you'll receive this, basically electronically, and then you can sign up. Now, here's what you're signing up for. When you say, I want to take the tithing challenge, you're saying this. You're saying, I either want to start tithing or I do give, but I don't give 10% and I want to move to 10%. Or maybe you say, I give 10%, but I see that my church is in need and I want to help. I'm going to give above 10%. Any of those work. And here's what you're going to get from me. Starting next month, you're going to get an update from me about the, the, a simple snapshot about where we are in our church and our finances. You'll be able to look at it in 30 seconds and tell what's going on. And you will be able to see over time how your giving is helping us to reach the goal that we need to reach to touch uh, our local community. So you can also sign up on the Kingwood app if you want to do it there, if you've downloaded. Over 300 of you have already got our mobile app. There's a, a lot of other services you can access there too. So if you would today, before the month is over, sign up for the tithing challenge and help us be the church God wants us to be. Now, uh, we're continuing our series we've called uh, Recommit. So if you're a guest, if uh, this is for you too, if you'll sort of zero back in. Um, we're continuing our series we've called Recommit. And we're at the point in our own renewal journey as a church where, where it's time to recommit to some things that God has given us. Now, how many of you um, are Auburn fans, Auburn football fans? Yeah, I didn't need any feedback. I'm just asking. How many of you are Auburn? Okay. How many of you are Alabama fans? Wow. How many of you could care less? Uh oh. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Calm down. It'll be all right. I was never a college football fan. But when I married my wife, um, I, it's almost like marrying a terrorist. You convert or they kill you. And so I became an Alabama fan because my sweet little wife bleeds roll tide crimson red. 
And so I didn't ever watch the college. I didn't know nothing about it. So when we were youth pastoring in our first church, we were living in Auburn, Alabama. See the dark clouds gathering. And we were youth pastoring there, and so the Iron Bowl was coming up. I didn't know very much about the Iron Bowl. And I said, I got this great idea. So I just kind of send ideas by her and see how they went. It's a great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to do a um, youth group party. Uh, it'll be cool, good fellowship, everybody come out. And we'll just, uh, uh, you know, this back when video projectors were kind of first the thing. We're going to make this giant screen across the entire stage of the youth room. We're going to project the game up there. We're going to cook out. People invite their friends. It'll be awesome. And she goes, don't do it. What do you mean don't do it? She goes, it's the Iron Bowl. She said, you can't put hormonal teenagers in the same room. We pull for opposite teams. It's the Iron Bowl. I said, it's a football game. That doesn't matter. It's not a football game. How many of you know? How many of you are from Alabama? It is not a football game. It is a way of life. It is the Iron Bowl. It is 364 days of bragging rights. Yes? And I said, baby, you're you're over-exaggerating this thing. What could go wrong? Well, so the day came. And and if you want to Google, if you want to Google, 1994, I think, Iron Bowl, there's some intense parts of that game. And there were some kids who had been raised in some rough homes who were really excited about their team, and they hadn't learned at 14 yet exactly how to manifest that in public. And, and so I remember the first thing, there was this argument, and your team does this, and your team does that, and then there were doors slamming and hamburgers being thrown and you know people screaming and tables being flipped over. And I said, oh, my Lord, it's like Jesus flipping stuff over in the temple, driving everybody out. What's going on up in this place? It was crazy. By the way, Alabama won 21-14. Just a side note, just a side note, but I'm going to tell you, by the time it was over, our youth room was so close to the Auburn Stadium, you could hear them yelling in the stadium when something would happen. And we had people inside and outside, and I was chasing them, trying to break up fights and get kids not to throw stuff. It almost wrecked the whole youth ministry for another 30 days at least. I mean, it took all kind of recovery to fix it. And I said, in Jesus' name, no more Iron Bowl parties. It is not happening here again, and, and it, it just reminded me, it just reminded me how much I didn't intend for it to go like that. <laughs> Do you ever think sometimes that God looks at the church and says, that's just not how I intended for that to go? That's not really what I was thinking. And so uh, I just wanted to show you, too often we have this um, us versus them mentality. And so I just want to show you this simple kind of dividing line. You know, there are them and and there are us, right? You know, they're they're the boss and the boss doesn't understand what our employees go through over here. And then they're the employees and they don't understand what us bosses go through over here. And and then there are black people on this side that don't understand what white people. And white people on this side don't understand what black people go through. And then people who immigrate who don't understand this and people who this. And and it goes on and on. Men on this side who don't understand what women go through. And then singles who don't understand what married people go through. And then there's older people who don't understand younger people. And younger people who don't understand older people. And there's this divide line that 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 it's very easy for us around all kind of causes to start to separate ourselves and say well that's them over there this is us and that's them and there's this this dividing line now 
we've, we've been talking about this series, Recommit, and we, we said, look, to do spiritual renewal the way God wants to do it in us, we have to recommit to some things. And so I've asked you every week, two weeks ago, will you recommit to God's presence in prayer? Last week I said, will you recommit to the spiritual gifts that God's put in you? So this week I want to ask, will you recommit to God's family? Because God has this vision for his family. He has this intention about how he wants it to go. And we can read about it in Ephesians chapter 2, 14. It tells us, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier... The dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, this is a powerful phrase, one new humanity. One new, it's never existed before, humanity out of the two thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So God has this vision to create a new humanity. He wasn't trying to make Jews more like Gentiles, and he wasn't trying to make Gentiles more like Jews, and he's not trying to make white people more like black people, or black people more like white people. It's not that at all. He came to remove the dividing line and create something brand new that had never existed before, a brand new community of people, a new humanity. So if you look at this dividing line, when Jesus came, he painted this other line going this way. He built a bridge across this dividing line that makes a cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he did away with the dividing line and supernaturally created a way for a new humanity to exist. So the Bible tells us in Christ... There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. He has done away with the dividing line. Now, uh, what Jeremy said in worship uh, excited me to hear because, because I was sharing the exact same thought. In the book of Acts, we hear that Christians are called people of the way or the way. Right? How many of you have heard that phrase before? People of the way. Look, you got to understand, this new humanity was so radically different from anything the world had ever seen, the people around didn't really know what to do with it. So they created names for it and things to call it, and they called it uh, the way, people of the way. But scholars tell us that early Christians also were called by another name. And here it is, the third race. You're no longer Jew, you're no longer Gentile, you're not Jewish race, you're not Gentile race, you're third race. It's a whole new group of people that had never existed a new race. So, if you look at this cross, here's what Jesus intended. This circle represents a new 
race, a third race, a new community of people that is Christ-centered. That's what God, that's his vision for a new humanity. That this new third race would be centered in Christ where Jesus is in the middle. So, where there's no division, where there's no barriers, where there's no us versus them, and there's a new community where Christ is at the center, people are drawn into that fellowship. People are drawn into that new race. People are drawn into that love and into that unity and and into that. When Jesus is in the middle, it brings people together because he bridged the dividing line. This past week on Thursday, we were at a basketball game, and um, one of the players on our team, his grandparents uh, are always at the game, and we've you know talked to him a little bit, got to know him a little bit, and uh, they're an African American couple, and we just kind of talk you know basketball and simple things, and for some reason or another after the game they they asked us they said, hey, uh, did you go to uh, Thompson High School? I said, no, I'm, I'm not from here. I was raised in Tennessee, but my wife did. And I said, did you go to, where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Helena. And I said, did you go to Thompson? He said, no, no, I didn't go to Thompson. I, I, uh, integration hadn't happened yet, and I wasn't allowed to go to Thompson. And I thought, oh, boy, that, that, that kind of that jumped up in my face. And I said, really, you know, tell me about that. He said, well... I was, um, I was bused from Helena to Montevallo because black kids weren't allowed to go to school with white kids. And so there was a, a school somehow in Montevallo he was bused to. He said until integration came and my senior year, then I had to change schools and I was then bused from Helena to Thompson. And, and I don't know why, I just saw this couple, sweet precious it, it just flew all over me and I, I stand there in the gym starting to cry and I thought Lord here I am puddling in the floor in the middle of this game and I said um you know that must have been hard how, how did that feel how did that feel to you and he said you know my parents always taught me to love everybody no matter their color and I learned that if I didn't forgive, I'd be a prisoner to this. So I had to forgive. And, and it is just I started crying more. Because <laughs> I said, I said, I want to tell you something from my heart. I'm so sorry that that chapter of life ever existed. And I want to thank you for forgiving. Because you, you have changed so many people's lives. He said, you know, I was the first black police officer in Helena. I said, really? He said, yeah. And so we talked for a little while, and in the middle of that fellowship, my mind just went to this idea that that, that's not, God looks down at that and says, that's not how I ever intended for it to be. He didn't intend for people to live like that. He had a vision for a new humanity, for a third race. And so, as the game was over, I pulled our youngest son over, and I introduced him, and I said, hey, I just want you to know, you know, he plays on the team with their grandson, but we never knew each other on that level, and I said, hey, I want you to know what this family's been through. Right here in Alabaster, in our city, when he was your age, when he was in high school, he couldn't go to high school because he's black. 
He had to go somewhere else. And I looked at my son and I said, it's your generation's responsibility to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. Can't ever happen again. It's a new humanity. So we sort of cleaned up and left. <laughs> but in this scripture, God has a vision for a church that's a new race. And we're the third race. And this is what the Bible's talking about in Ephesians 2. Jesus' death on the cross creates a new humanity, but he didn't stop there. He gave us pictures of what that new humanity ought to look like. And so I want to give you those three pictures this morning. Here's the first picture in Ephesians 2, 19. Just the next verse from where we read. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and God's people. So here's the first picture we get a new identity. God's vision for a new community was a new identity. You and I have a new identity. When we accept Jesus, when we follow the way, when we receive forgiveness and we start to we become Christians, we become citizens of another land. We are now citizens of heaven. We have a, a membership there. We belong there. We're temporarily here, passing through here, but we are eternally there. And that is a new identity. And as a citizen of heaven, you have the right to experience everything heaven has to offer now. You have eternal peace and eternal joy. And you have fellowship with those fellow citizens. You have relationship and community. And oftentimes when we go through life, so many things undermine our identity. They chisel away at our identity. Our culture, the media, things around us scream. The, 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 the part of the society that does not follow God screams at us, you are not going to heaven. There is no heaven. This isn't real. God isn't real. God doesn't love you. There's so many thoughts that scream and undermine our identity. This is why it is so important that people of the third race come together and remind each other who they are. That's why we have to recommit to God's family. Every time you have spiritual fellowship with another Christian, you are reminding each other, this is not our home. We don't belong here. Your identity in Christ gets stronger as you have spiritual fellowship. You and I need Christian community because we need to be reminded who we are because we all forget. We get bogged down in the details of life. We get bogged down in the sinfulness of this world. We get bogged down in the busyness, and we forget. When, when I was uh, around 17 years old, there was a, um, a Bible study I was a part of. I'd been a Christian about a year and a half, and I, I didn't know how to live this new life out. I didn't know. And, and some friends invited me to this Bible study for my church, and it, it was one of the most life-changing things I, I've ever been a part of. We would sat around, sit around in somebody's living room. We'd study the Bible. We'd pray. We'd pray for each other. We'd worship. I don't remember who led. I don't remember what was said. All I remember is, is my life was getting rocked. It was getting changed. 
I mean radically changed. We talk about what happened at church. We talk about the sermon. We talk about what God was doing. We talk about what could we do to, to do it. What can we do to be part of this? What can we do to live this out authentically? And, and I'm just telling you, that season of my life was one of the times I changed the most because I needed somebody to help me define what my new identity was because I knew what my old identity was, but I didn't understand my new one. And that community gathered around me and would speak things to me from God's Word, speak things to me through the gifts of the Spirit. And I would speak to them. And it formed an identity. And I can tell you, every time I left, because there's this thought when you're transitioning from darkness to light, when you're coming into the kingdom, there's this thought, and it lasts a different amount of time for everybody. You're kind of wondering, am I the old me or am I the new me? Am I really going to go all the way with this or not? Those of us who've walked with the Lord for decades don't, don't think like that anymore. Hopefully. But for those of you who've walked with the Lord maybe five years, ten years, who knows? It's a different amount of time, one year. You have this, this dilemma, this pull, this conflict. This Am I really changed? Is this really real? Can I really live it? Can I live up to this? Can I do all this? All these questions and confusion. It's so affirming and powerful when you're surrounded by other believers who say, Hey, you are part of God's family. You have a new identity. You're going to heaven when this is over. You're a citizen of somewhere else. God loves you. He's behind you. He's resourced you. He's gifted you. He's blessed you. You have every tool at your disposal. Don't let the enemy harass you. Don't let him bully you around. And what happens is I would leave that Bible study and I would say, doggone it, I am a Christian. <laughs> and, and that's that what is what happens. It gave me a new identity. The second picture is Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. He says, fellow citizen with, with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The second picture is a new family. God gives us a new family. It doesn't mean it does away with our old family. It doesn't mean that our mom and dad's not still mom and dad and our brothers. That's not what it means. It means that we are networked inside a spiritual community, a spiritual family that may confirm the spiritual family we came from because we came from a Christian family. Or it may pull us into a new type of relationship and a new type of family because the family we came from was broken and wasn't Christian. So one of the ways we find our devotion to God is through God's family. Now, in the ancient East, and the culture the Bible was written in, people oriented their entire lives, uh, they were tribal, rural people, and they oriented their entire lives around their tribe and their family, and it meant everything, and it defined everything, and they could not interpret life outside the filter of their community, and at times, it probably went a little too far. And so when Jesus comes along, he, he, he pushed back against that a little bit, and, and he says in the imbalance of their day, I want your devotion to be to God, more than to your tribe or family. 
Because people would, if their tribe turned their back on God, they turned their back on God with their tribe. So their greater devotion was to their tribe or their family and God says, hey, I want. But look, today we live in a very different culture. Our culture has gone way too far the other way. We as Americans live in isolation. And technology has only magnified that. How many times have you been in a restaurant recently, you look over there, and you know somebody's got their headphones on playing on their phone, surrounded by two other people at the dinner table? And you go, what are you doing? They're humans across the table. Technology magnifies isolation. And so sociologists tell us that America's been labeled the loneliest nation on earth. Because we've gone too far the other way. So, Jesus speaks to a tribal people and says, I want you to be more devoted to God than to your family. I think if Jesus were here today, he would say, I want you to be more devoted to God's family than to your dreams and ideas. So it's a whole different approach and shift and what we get from this picture. In our culture, we're moving away from community as passionately as I've ever seen it. And, it cre- and it's literally individualism is tearing down family and church and relationship. So you can see how in our day, God wants to restore and to do what only he can do. Look, we see in our culture, church attendance is dropping every Stat says the same thing. Families are breaking down because we are abandoning relationship for our own dreams and our own ideas. But God's vision of the body of Christ is if, if we make it, I make it. The American dream is if I make it, I make it. But God's dream is if we make it, I make it. I can't make it without you, and you can't make it without me. And at the heart of God's family is that philosophy. Look, I, I have um, strengths that I've been given from my natural earthly family. But I also had a tremendous amount of weaknesses. My family was broken and um, wounded in so many ways. And when I came into the, the family of God, when I came into Jesus' family, it literally um, changed so much about my life. When Stacy and I were in Florida, we've never lived near our natural family till recently. When we lived in Florida, we had our first child. And here comes from inside the church, God raises up this couple who became like godparents to our, to our son. And when Stacy was pregnant, we went to the hospital. Man, they were there. They were trading out car seats and getting things ready. And they were there loving us and helping us and encouraging us. And, and all along the way, a couple of years ago, when our whole life just crumbled, I, I had text and emails and phone calls from people in different states because God gave me inside the church a spiritual family like I never had anywhere else. And that family knits together and strengthens and supports us I wouldn't know how to define my Christianity without you. Because over the last two years, so many of you have said to me, I can't even count, it's an un, I don't even know what the number is. The number of people who've messaged Facebook, 
you know, email, talk to me, put your hand on my shoulder and said, hey, I want you to know uh, that we're praying for you. I wouldn't know how to define my Christianity without you, and I wouldn't want to try. That's what God's vision for the family of God is. Is that we, in part, define our, our faith through each other, not just by ourselves. So here's the third picture. A, a new identity, a new family, and then Ephesians 2.21. In Him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So here's these three pictures. Uh, a new identity, a new family, and a new temple. Now to understand this one, you have to understand a little bit about the history of the temple. To the Hebrew people, the temple was everything. It was a tourist attraction. You can see some of the pictures we're going to uh, scroll through of Herod's temple. People would come from all over that region of the world to see Herod's temple. I mean, like I said, it's a tourist attraction. It was 36 acres. Not the property, the building was 36 acres. It was massive and it had gold everywhere. And on top of the building, there were these six foot gold cluster of grapes. I mean, it was incredibly opulent. One historian wrote if you heard of the temple, you thought it was incredible. But if you saw it with your own eyes, you were utterly amazed and you left giving reverence to God. Now this is the picture that Ephesians is drawing from when it's talking about that God's family becomes a new temple. So here's, here's how to think about it. Every time you and I live a committed life to God's family, we build a new temple. And that new temple is constructed out of relationships and people outside the church see it and say, now that's different. Something about those people is different. Black people love white people and white people love Hispanic people and men and women get along and older and younger. Wait a minute, something is different. That's the third race. That's the new temple. That's the new, that's the new witness. That's the new testimony. This is the exact same vision that Jesus had in John 13, 35 when he said, By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. It's the same vision. So this morning, I, I, I want to say to you, that temple is never built unless you invest time in spiritual relationships in God's family. It's never built. And when that temple's not built, you, your faith is weaker, your church is weaker, and the testimony to this county is weaker. Because that temple is never constructed and there's no vision that's shown. So I want to ask you today, Who's your group? You, 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 can't, you can't love everybody in this room personally. You can't even know everybody in this room personally. You don't even know everybody's name in this room. Statistics tell us the average person in the local church can only know about 60 people by name. Well, there's more than 60 people in this room, and when you leave, we got a whole other service coming, and then you don't know all of them either. Right? 
So where is your group of people whose names you know, whose hearts you know, who you are, you are part of God's family with? Who is the group of people in the family of God who's reminding you of your new identity? Who's reminding you that you're part of God's family? Who's reminding you that you have a purpose and you have a mission and together we're building this temple and it is rising to become a testimony not just to us but to those outside the church? So the question I've got this morning for you is simply this. Will you, if you want spiritual renewal, it cannot happen without spiritual relationships. God told us, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. One of those isn't going to do it. you got to have both. And so the question I have for you in 2017 is, will you recommit to spiritual relationships? Will you recommit to God's family at Kingwood Church? Now, maybe you're a guest today, and you're from out of town or whatever, and you're going to go back home, and maybe you have a church there. Uh, then maybe the Holy Spirit brought you here today to remind you that you need to go home and you need to recommit to that church family. Maybe, that, maybe, that's, why, maybe that's how God arranges for you today. But if this is your church, will you recommit to God's family at Kingwood Church? Now, if you don't have this kind of community in your life, a really good question is, you know, where do you start? Well, today... We have 21 life group leaders who are in the foyer and they're waiting to greet you when service is over. Eight of those 21 leaders are starting a group today that's never existed before. So they don't really have a group. All they have are leaders. But they want to have a group and they want to have a group where these kind of relationships can be built. And we have this uh, life group guide that tells you about all the groups that we have, when they meet, what they do, what their focus is, who it's for. If you have the Kingwood app, we shot you this uh, electronically this morning uh, through, through our app, through a notification. We also emailed it to everybody. We also have copies in the foyer, so it's everywhere. You're not going to get away from us. We know where you live, and we're coming for you. So today after service, if you haven't found that connection yet, I just want to encourage you, you know, try. You know, try. Look, relationships aren't like one of those, you know, it's not a Chia Pet. Don't just add water, and, you know, tomorrow you're going to have the most satisfying, significant relationships you've ever known in your life. How many of your marriages work that way? <laughs> no, 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 no. She's beside you. Don't answer that. Relationships don't grow like that. They take time. So I would encourage you, find a group that you think you would fit in the best. Join it. And, and most of these groups are going to start next month, and they're going to end in April. They're going to go for about three months, and they're going to stop. So try it for the spring. If it doesn't work out, try a different one. No, it's okay. But I want to encourage you that spiritual relationships are valuable enough that they're, they're worth some trial and error. They're worth some effort. We don't value that in our culture at all. 
We just don't. Remember, loneliest nation on earth. But if you're going to experience deep spiritual renewal, it's going to be because you've taken that step to recommit your life to God's family. I'm not just going to, you know, have acquaintances at the ball field with my kids or, you know, in the neighborhood or, you know, these different civic groups that we flow in and out of that are fun. But they're never going to give you spiritual community. They're never going to fulfill the vision that God has for his church. And so you'll never know that if you don't recommit to God's family. So I just want to ask you to stand with me this morning, and we're going to close like this. Every time, every time I uh, have good fellowship with another Christian, whether I'm in another country of the world, or I'm across town, or I'm hanging out with one of you, every time I have good spiritual fellowship, it always reminds me how good God is. I always, I always walk away with this sense of God's goodness. And so this morning, we're just going to close with this song. And uh, we're, we're going to do it about halfway through. And then I'm going to let you go if you want to go and check out our groups. If you want to hang around and sing the second half, you can do that. But would you just close your eyes with me this morning? We just say, Lord, I know that you're good. And I thank you for your goodness. And today, Lord, I celebrate your goodness. And I bless you for your goodness. And I thank you today that you are good. And you are good through our relationships with your family. So today we celebrate you. Go ahead. Just sing this with us. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I ride, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let the King of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for You are.